Good morning, friends. Uh, today's message is uh, the rest of the story, or just who are these guys? You know, I was flipping through my Bible a few weeks ago, and I found myself passing by Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the so-called Hall of Fame chapter, where it seemed the author, whoever he was, seemed to kind of run out of time because he stopped writing out some of the full stories of all these great heroes of faith. And then in verse 32, he mentions four names from the period of the judges, and this is what he wrote. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. So who are these four guys? And and why did the author pick them out? I mean, he names four men from the period of the judges, which is a pretty wild era in Israel's history. Uh, you go back and read Judges chapter 21, 25, where it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, here's what we know about these four guys. <clears throat> Gideon defeated the Midianites. Barak defeated the Canaanites. Samson defeated the Philistines. And Jephthah defeated the Ammonites. Now, these four men are mentioned only here in the New Testament. That fact ought to make us pay attention. We also need to know that each of these four men had significant character flaws. Now, these are real men, real flesh and blood heroes whom God considered honored in spite of their flaws. Their faith was like ours, mingled with fear, soiled with unbelief and doubt, spotted with compromise, troubled by human reasoning, and yet... And yet, and yet, it was true faith, badly flawed, but faith nonetheless. God knew all about their faults, but he honored their faith anyway. Now hold on to that word, anyway. We're going to come back to that later. So let me flesh out these four guys this morning. Gideon was fearful, and the author says, I do not have time to tell you about Gideon. Well, let's go back in time about 3,000 years to meet this guy named Gideon. The angel of the Lord came to him one day in Judges chapter 6, verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, this surprising word came in the midst of the Midianite oppression of Israel. The Midianites were a really big army from the east. They invited Israel riding on camels. And they came each year during the harvest, just as the Israelites were harvesting their crops. What would happen is they'd just come in, plunder the land, get on their camels, right out of town, and then stay away until the next year's harvest. And then they'd come back and do it all over again. So every year at harvest time, the Jews were losing everything that they'd worked for because the Midianites kept invading. People of God were reduced to living in caves because they were frightened of these powerful Midianites. In response to this crisis, God tapped Gideon on the shoulder and said, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. Now, the angel of the Lord is truly clear on the point. He says, Gideon, you're the man who will deliver my people. And he repeats it two or three times in Judges 6. And Gideon says, who me? Yes, you. Oh, you got the wrong man. No, I don't. You're the man, Gideon. So all is now set for the showdown between the men of Israel and the invading Midianites. The men are gathered. The enemy is approaching. All is ready for the great battle. Everyone that is except Gideon. He is still not sure if he's the right man to lead Israel. And at that point, Gideon asked God to give him a sign, unmistakable proof that he had really called him to lead Israel. And he even names the sign. He put out a fleece and asked God to make the fleece wet and the ground dry. 
And when God did that, it was, well, it was not enough. So Gideon asked him to do it again, only in reverse, making the ground wet and the fleece dry. You can read again. You should read that in Judges 6. And it's only then that Gideon finally believed what the Lord had told him in the beginning. Now, friends, I want you to understand something. It was not a sin to ask God for a fleece, but it was a sign of a weak faith because he already knew what God wanted him to do. And if you make that a habit, it's a sign of weak faith in your own life. When you look at Gideon's life, you do not see a man of great faith. You see a man of weak faith whom God used greatly. If you go ahead and read Judges 7, you can see that God used Gideon and his 300 men to spring a nighttime surprise <clears throat> on the unsuspecting Midianites. I mean, he uses a classic military uh, ruse to make them think his army was much larger than it was. They had to do something unusual because the enemy forces were, as scripture says, thick as locusts in the valley. So he divides his 300 men into three groups, spread them around the vast Midianite army, and at the appointed hour, the men began to shout, <clears throat> to blow trumpets, to wave torches in the darkness. The Midianites fled in total confusion, leading to a complete rout of the enemy and a total victory for Gideon's men. And so it is that it turns out that Gideon made a fine military leader once he got past his fear. As long as he thought he could not do it, he was right. But once faith replaced fear, he won a mighty victory for the Lord. <clears throat> and that leads us to Barak. Barak was timid. And the author says, I do not have time to tell you about him. But whenever you mention Barak's name, you need to add another name with it. It's not just Barak, it's Deborah and Barak. So the question is, who is this Deborah? Well, she was not his wife. Deborah was the only female judge in Israel. The spiritual life of Israel had fallen so low that the nation was now being led by a woman. I don't mean that in any disrespect, but that's just the way it was. Now, this is no knock on Deborah because she is clearly brave. She's decisive. She's bold. She judged Israel because none of the men would step up and do the job. So after 20 years of humiliating oppression at the hand of the Canaanites, God raised up this prophetess to represent him to the people. And since Barak commanded the army, Deborah sent for him and told him to go into battle. She even gave him the battle plan in Judges 4. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now, on one hand, this is amazingly simple. God gave the battle plan to Deborah, who gave it to Barak. All he has to do is rally the troops, go into battle, and win the victory. But read verse 8 for his timid response. Barak said to her, If you'll go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, excuse me for saying this, but that's downright pathetic. It's a man's job to saddle up and face the enemy. Being a man means having the courage in the face of great danger. Barak will not even go to battle unless Deborah goes with him. And in case you think I'm being too hard on this guy, check out what Deborah says in response in verse 9. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. 
See, even Deborah, a great leader in her own right, did not like his response. I mean, what a namby-pamby, mealy-mouth, wishy-washy answer this guy gave. I mean, could you imagine John Wayne or Clint Eastwood talking like this? Uh, you know, but I can partly understand his hesitation. We find out in later verses that the Canaanites had something the Israelites completely lacked. They had iron chariots. That meant that the enemy had a huge advantage. From the Isra- for the Israelites to attack would seem to be a suicide mission, kind of like sending out Cub Scouts armed with pea shooters to do battle against a tank brigade. So God sent a storm that flooded the Kishon River, trapping the iron chariots. It turned into a slaughter, a rout, a total victory for the men of Israel. And in another ironic twist, Sisera, the captain of the Canaanite army, escaped only to be tricked, trapped, and nailed to the ground by a woman named Jael, who drove a tent peg through his temple. She then said to Barak, come, I will show you the man you're looking for. And there was Sisera nailed to the ground with a tent peg through his temple. Killed not by a man, but by a woman. So even though Barak led the troops in battle, Deborah and Jael get the credit. Now, is Barak a bad guy? Well, no, he was a good guy who was too dependent on other people. I mean, given the credit he deserves, he's listed in Hebrews 11:32 as a man of faith, and he was. But he was timid when he should have been a strong leader. Let's get to the familiar guy, Samson. Samson was out of control. And again, the author says, I don't have time to tell you about Samson. Now, most of us know the general outlines of Samson's story. We know that he defeated the Philistines. We know that Delilah tricked him into revealing the strength, the secret of his strength. We know about his eyes being poked out and how he gained revenge by killing 3,000 Philistines in one of the most dramatic death scenes <clears throat> recorded in the Bible. But there is so much more to Samson. He is the American idol of the Old Testament. I mean, he had it all. I mean, good looks, great strength, popularity, the blessing of God, and he threw it all away. Of his life, it could truly be said that he had unlimited potential. I mean, no man in the Bible, it seems, started out with so much going for him, and no man ended with less. He had it all, and he let it all get away from him. I mean, Samson, if you will, is a bristling bundle of contradictions. He's a man of faith with a weakness for women. He was a man of prayer, but had uncontrollable fits of anger. He was a leader of Israel, but he lusted after Philistine women. He was a man of God, but he lacked common sense. He was empowered by the Spirit, yet often lived in the flesh. This is Samson, as someone would say, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. Now, he's listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith, yet he slept with a prostitute. I mean, go figure. When we read Samson's story, we tend to think that his problem was all in the sexual area. Well, actually, his problem is not in the sexual area at all. His most basic problem was that he never learned how to control his emotions. I mean, first he's filled with lust, then he's filled with anger. Then he's full of lust again, then anger again, and then lust and anger again. He's riding an emotional roller coaster from the peak to the valley and around a sharp corner, and then he does it all around again. And one moment he's worshiping God, the next he's flirting with the Philistine women. On one occasion, he leads the army of Israel to a stunning military victory by the power of the Spirit. Later, he sleeps with a Philistine prostitute. Not long after that, he meets Delilah, who tricks him into revealing the secret of his power, which leads to his imprisonment and death. Samson never learned to control his emotions, and so they controlled him completely. Proverbs 16.32 could have been written about this guy. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city 
In his day, Samson had taken more than one city, but he never learned to control his temper or how to rule his spirit. He never knew the first thing about self-control. And in the end, his runaway emotions, well, they ran away with him. I mean, Samson's zigzag life teaches us that it's very possible to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do great things, and yet not to have your life yielded to the full control of the Holy Spirit. Samson, at certain points, was empowered by the Spirit of God, but there was never a point in his life, it seems, when for a long time period of time he was under the control of God's Spirit. Uh, he's deeply flawed, and I should add, like most of us. He finds himself continually battling anger and illicit desire, like most of us. I mean, he could sometimes do amazing things for God, like most of us. He could turn right around and make incredibly stupid mistakes, like most of us. And yet, he began to deliver his people from the Philistines, just as the angel of the Lord said he would in Judges 13.5. And lo and behold, he ends up at Hebrews 11. Well, let's get to a guy maybe you don't know much about either. His name is Jephthah, and Jephthah was foolish. And the author says, I don't have time to tell you about him. You know, the very first verse of Judges 11 tells you everything you need to know about him. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was a Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Now, don't overlook that last line. His mother was a prostitute. That's not a very promising beginning. Maybe that's part of why he was such a great warrior. I'm sure everyone else knew about his past, and, and probably a lot of people held it against him. I mean, things like that drive a guy to prove himself over and over again. And when he grew up, his own family turned against him, so he ran away and he gathered a group of thugs who joined his gang. So that's Jephthah, a man from a bad background who becomes the Old Testament gang leader. But when the Ammonites attacked, the men of Israel asked Jephthah to come back home and lead them in battle because he was their best warrior. And after a little bit of a negotiation, he accepts their offer. And then he begins to negotiate with the Ammonites, reminding them that they had no quarrel with the Israelites. Well, that didn't work. The Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he prepared to go into battle. And at that moment, he made a very foolish mistake that would haunt him forever in his one fact we remember about him today. He vowed that if the Lord would help him win the battle, he would offer to the Lord a burnt offering of the first thing that came through the doors of his house when he returned home from fighting the Ammonites. You can read that in Judges 11, verses 30 and 31. And no doubt he expected the first thing to be an animal of some sort. But to his shock and dismay, it turned out to be his daughter, his only child coming out to welcome him. And disraught, he ripped his clothes and said, I made an oath to the Lord and cannot break it. So for two months, his virgin daughter spent time in the hills with her friends. And at the end of two months, in Judges 11.39, it says, He did to her as he, is, he had vowed. She died a virgin. <clears throat> now, though debated, I take it that he actually offered his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord, a heathen practice strictly forbidden by God. There are some other commentators who believe he offered it to the Lord in a life of perpetual virginity, but either way, it was a rash and foolish vow. And it came on the heels of a great big victory over the Ammonites. That vow was unnecessary and dangerous. I mean, these were depraved times, and the moral situation had sunk so low that I think it is likely that he actually sacrificed his very own daughter. So here we have the hardest case of all. 
a gang leader for God, the son of a prostitute who made a rash vow, wins a mighty victory, apparently sacrifices his own daughter, and he still shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, it's kind of hard to get your mind around all of that, so what are we to think about these four flawed heroes? I mean, Gideon, who was afraid to answer God's call. Barak, so timid he needed a woman to tell him what to do. Samson, who could not control his emotions, and Jephthah, who made a foolish vow. I mean, folks, these are seriously flawed men, yet they made the book. And if there's room for them, there is room for you and me. I mean, deep down, these were men of faith who believed in God, and they were willing to act on what they believed. Their significant faults cannot be overlooked, but those faults cannot and do not keep them out of the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Now, by this time, you might be asking yourself, why would God use or choose men like this? Here's my answer. God uses flawed people to demonstrate his grace so that when the victory is won, he, God, alone gets the glory. Paul says much the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Now, we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. And you know something, friends? That's really all we are, just clay pots that are easily cracked and often broken. We're not expensive china you buy in some high-dollar store. We're kind of like ordinary Walmart kitchenware, useful but not particularly expensive. We're all cracked, we're all chipped in various places, yet God in His grace uses us anyway. And hang on to that word, anyway. Gideon, was fearful, but God used him anyway. Barak was timid, but God used him anyway. Samson did a lot of dumb stuff, but God used him anyway. Jephthah made a terrible mistake, but God used him anyway. Finally, I think it comes down to this. Either we believe in the redeeming grace of God, or we do not. If we do, then we will not be surprised that God includes these four flawed heroes in the Hall of Fame. And we'll be glad that they made the book, because that means God can use people like you and me as well. In one commentary on Hebrews eleven thirty-two, John Calvin had this c- conclusion. He wrote, Thus in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. Yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. So friends, take a look at the mirror this morning. There's something reprehensible there. John Calvin said so, and you know something, he's right. You are not perfect, far from it, and neither am I. And our faith, halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. And then Calvin added these words of exhortation to all of us. He said, there is therefore no reason... Why the faults we labor under should break us down or dishearten us, provided we by faith go on in the race of our calling. You see, friends, God honors faith and he seeks it so much that he will honor people who otherwise do some really stupid things. We all labor under a sense of our own failure. Like Gideon, we are slow to answer the call. Like Barak, we sometimes need someone else to push us. Like Samson, we let our emotions guide us wrongly. And like Jephthah, we say things that hurt ourselves and others.
Let us then push on by faith, despite our failures, knowing that if God can use men like this, he can use us too. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.